Good morning, good morning, good morning. One of my favorite things to study is not just the New Testament, but the world around the New Testament. Stories about um, other heroes that we don't actually see in the Bible. And one of those characters is a guy named Rabbi Akrabah. Um, sounds like a cool guy from Star Wars, but really was just a good rabbi that lived around the same time that the Apostle Paul lived. One story about uh, the rabbi is one night he was going home and had gotten lost in thoughts, kind of their version of highway hypnosis. And rather than taking the right to Damascus towards his own home, he missed the turn and kept walking and walking and walking until presently he came upon a Roman garrison. The Roman guard sees this rabbi coming his way and as was his job, he cried out, who are you? What are you doing here? The rabbi responded, waking up from his dreams, How much are they paying you? Taken aback, the guard once more cried out, Who are you? What are you doing here? And again, the rabbi asked, How much are they paying you? Confused, this time the guard whispered it. Who who, who are you? What are you doing here? One more time, the rabbi said, How much are they paying you? Finally, the guard acquiesced. He gave in and said, two denarii. Without batting an eye, the rabbi looked and said, well, I'll tell you what, I will double that if you'll come to my house every day and ask me those two questions. Who are you? What are you doing here? See, the rabbi knew that those two questions are two of the most important questions of our lives. Some of the hardest answers to find and some of the easiest to forget. And when you live in a world today where people are trying to find out who they are, they want to know, why are we here? And one reason at NDC we've been reading the Bible together is because we want to know the answer to those two questions, and we don't want to forget who we are and why we are here. As we're finishing up the Old Testament, um, to be honest, we've learned more about the answers of Israel who they are and what they are doing here. And tragically, we've seen that again and again, they've forgotten who they are or even worse, egregiously rejected that to the point that when we finish the Old Testament, there's Malachi, the prophet, who says to the people, God wishes he would just shut the door of your temple. He wants to get the sacrificial waste and put it all in your face. If you read the Hebrew, it reads like this. Behold, now we got bad blood. Now we got problems. I don't think we can fix them. Band-aids don't fix bullet holes. No, that's sorry. That's uh, Kansas City Chiefs mascot. Um, (laughs) Fortunately for Malachi and the people of Israel, God has a better plan, a less messy plan. His plan instead is to send a prophet like Elijah, who will prepare the way of the Lord. And when the Lord comes, he will not only redeem Israel, but the whole world. And that gets us to, giddy up, giddy up, the New Testament. Now, if you've been around NDC uh, for a while, you'll notice that um, every once in a while we'll stop from our sermon series and give like a one-off teaching session, uh, especially to help us kind of have a grasp and context um, as we're reading the Bible together um, as a church. But if you're not reading the Bible with us 
that's okay. Um, I'm convinced that what we're going to look at uh, today will also help you find the answer to that question of who we are and what we are doing here. So what I want to do, um, because I get so excited about the New Testament, I get like a mosquito in a nudist colony. Um, I, I need to um, maybe ask the Lord to help us uh, get all of what I want to share within our uh, 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 small slot. So let's pray and then we'll jump in uh, to kind of a New Testament survey in 20 minutes or less. Father, we just thank you so much uh, for um, the good news. God, we thank you that out of darkness there is a light who has come and been anointed to bring life and joy and peace. And that light is the person of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that he came and he died for our sins. And God, you raised him from the dead so that we can know who we are as your children adopted ambassadors and know what we're doing here as witnesses who come to share the good news and take care of the poor and love the marginalized. Father, we pray that your spirit would just be here this morning. Just guide our conversation and open our eyes and just remind us that you called us before the foundation of the world to be yours and to make you known. And it's in the name of Jesus and by your spirit that we pray. And God's people said, amen. All right, what I want to do, first of all, is give you kind of a bird's eye view of the New Testament. And then we're going to center in and focus a little bit more on Acts because it's a linchpin. As most of you know, the New Testament begins with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Very good. And um, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels um, because they are so much alike. It's almost like Matthew asks Mark, um, can I borrow your homework? And Mark's like, yeah, you can. You can copy it, but just change it around a little bit before you turn it in. That is to say, most scholars believe that Mark's gospel actually was the first gospel that was written. Um, and they tell us that Mark is giving us the account of Peter, uh, the number one disciple, according to Mark's gospel. Um, and then Matthew comes and he's going to write a gospel as well. And he decides to look at Mark's gospel to expand, to clarify some things, uh, to, to add some things that uh, Mark had left out. And then later Luke comes and Luke with a bit of a swag says, you know, I know these other guys have written a gospel, but I've come to write one. The Greek word is akrobos. I've come to write one that is more excellent or as we would say in the deep south where I'm from, mobeta. Um, and so he's going to look at Matthew and Mark and again, expand, clarify, uh, cut and um, uh, modify based on his own rhetorical purposes. So for example, if you remember, Mark begins his gospel with the story of John the Baptist, um, who comes like the Elijah, that gives us that seamless liaison connection back to what we saw with Malachi. So it makes sense um, that Mark would do that. But then when Matthew comes and he's looking at Mark's homework and he wants to change it up a bit, he comes and says, you know, um, I, I love starting with Elijah, John the Baptist, but we probably want to make sure that we tell people where Jesus was born in the birth narrative. And so Matthew adds um, the story of jo Joseph and Jesus going to Bethlehem in order to underline and to trace out to make sure no one forgets that Jesus is a son of David, that he is that promised Messiah that um, God had promised King David way back in 2 Samuel. 
Luke comes and says, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. I like what you did, Mark. And Matthew, I like what you did as well. Um, so, but, but I want to make sure that we do the birth narrative, not from Joseph's standpoint, but we want to give it from Mary, the mother of Jesus' standpoint. And it fits his vibe. It fits his uh, connection because one thing that Luke has a heart for is to exalt the voices and the role of women in the Gospels. And so rather than giving us Joseph's standpoint, um, he lets us hear um, the beautiful message of Mary and Elizabeth. Elizabeth. And, and so we see that there are times, if you've read through and continue to read through the Gospels, there's times where it's like, I think I just had deja vu. There's a glitch in the matrix um, because I think I've read this before. And if that's the case, it's because um, one of these are kind of borrowing from the others. There's other times you're like, well, I don't really remember this story. Um, why didn't Matthew include this? Or why did Luke um, uh, put not the Sermon on the Mount, but the Sermon on the Plain? And when you come to those discrepancies, those differences, then it's because using their own creative, inspired, artistic um, license, uh, they're going to add and, uh, and, and modify um, based on the purpose that they have for their audiences. So that gives us Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And as you're reading through and want to see those better, you can see that um, both of them, all, all three of those are kind of uh, working together in order to weave together um, these various eyewitnesses' accounts of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we get to John. Um, John, in contrast to the synoptics, is maybe he's at Enneagram 4. He's like, hello from the other side. He's going to come and says, you know what? Um, I'm going to do something different than what Matthew, Mark, and Luke did. Because, uh, yeah, Peter, he's a good guy and everything, but I'm Jesus' beloved disciple. I'm his favorite. Take that, uh, Peter. And so he's going to come and give us, for those of you who were raised up in the 80s, uh, like Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. He comes and gives us the rest of stories, includes a lot of stories and teachings that we don't see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, uh, miracles that Jesus does, and uh, Jesus is much more talkative. And he, he does some, something that Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, are more subtle and tacit with, and that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are going to emphasize that Jesus is the Son of God. But whereas they are saying that Jesus is the Son of God, John is going to scream it. Um, he is going to pound uh, the pulpit over and over and over that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is divine. And so that gives us the four Gospels. And then from the four Gospels, we move to Acts. Um, and what a lot of people don't know is that Luke also wrote Acts. And it's kind of part two. And so Luke wants us to read Acts as well. It's going to give us the history. And we'll come back to Acts in a moment because, again, it's a great uh, segue from the Gospels. And it sets up the context um, and the, the chronology of Paul's letters and um, the, general, the general letters, which leads us to the third part of the New Testament as we continue to go through it. The third part are the letters from my boy, um, the Apostle Paul. Um, some of you are like, uh, I don't really, I'm not, not really quite sure what I think about the Apostle Paul. Um, I think as you begin to read Paul from, uh, from his own account, you may realize that it's a different Paul than those who are abused and used Paul. Um, Paul is full of humility. He um, champions women. Um, he's not, uh, yeah, he, he, he is full of uh, love and humility and um, the heart for the church. And so Paul has 13 letters um, from Romans all the way to Philemon. Uh, Romans is probably not the first letter that Paul wrote, but we put it there because um, it is his, uh, one of his longest letters. And Acts, as you'll see, ends with Paul in Rome. And so it kind of makes sense. But um, so Romans through Philemon is Paul writing to specific churches 
with particular people with some major problems sometimes, some, and then sometimes just Paul to encourage them. But we see that um, Paul does not sit down to write like a dogma, like a systematic theology. Instead, he is a pastor and a missionary who loves his people. And so he's writing this, and sometimes, not George Strait, but um, in a sense of wanting to be like a fireman. There, he's writing these letters because there's fires, and he's going around trying to put these fires down that are happening in the church. And so much of his theology is on the go, if you will. So those are Paul's 13 letters. And that gets us to the next sec- section that we call the general letters. Um, this is like Hebrews and James and 1 John and uh, 1 Peter, uh, Jude, th- these works. What you'll see is that in contrast or in comparison to Paul, uh, whereas Paul writes to specific churches or people, uh, to the Philippians, uh, to the Ephesians, to the Romans, to the Corinthians, or to Timothy, or to Titus, the general epistles, we're not quite sure who they're written to. And um, in comparison to Paul, where Paul is really good at following the conventional standard letter writing rules of the day, um, these guys, if you read Hebrews or you read James, it sounds more like a sermon, a better sermon than you're getting today, but it sounds more like a sermon than it does read like a letter. And it gives us a kind of an eavesdropping, a bit of a picture of these early Jewish Christian sermons um, that, we, that, that they were preaching during that time that gives us this great theology. Finally, we get to the end of the Bible, um, the book of Revelation. Uh, the book of Revelation has probably been used and abused more than any other work. Um, it is what we call an apocalyptic work. Um, we may unpack it a little bit more for you as we get uh, closer to reading it, but Revelation is telling us it's the end of the world as we know it, and we feel fine, right? Um, and so Revelation is going to tell us about the end of the world, but what scholars are going to tell us is that more than about our time, uh, John, the, the revelator, the guy who is having this vision, is really telling us about what's happening in Rome and the early church. And so it's really telling us what God is doing in the midst of the oppression and the suffering of this empire more than it's supposed to be telling us about today. Well, let's go back uh, to Acts because, again, Acts is going to be so crucial in understanding the ramifications of the four Gospels and also paving the way for these letters and sermons and, yes, even Revelation. And so today, let's get our acts together. Or maybe I should say, let's get our acts in gear. Uh, let's get off our act. Well, never mind. Okay, so we come to Acts, and as I mentioned before, uh, Luke is the author uh, of Acts, and uh, I think Luke um, wants us to read Luke and Acts together. There are a lot of echoes that we see in Luke that go back, um, in Acts that go back to the Gospel of Luke. Um, so, for example, one of Jesus' first uh, miracles in the Gospel of Luke is where he comes to the paralytic, uh, the man who is paralyzed, and he says, Um, get up off your feet and dance. You feel better, right? And then we see the very first miracle that Peter performs in Acts is he sees a man who is paralyzed. And guess what he says? I mean, Greek, get off your feet and dance. You feel better. And we have this um, cohesion between Luke and Acts. Um, Let's think about Jesus when he's on the cross. If you remember uh, in Luke's gospel only, there are two statements that uh, Luke clarifies that Matthew and Mark leave out. Jesus says, uh, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. In Luke's gospel, and then also in Luke's gospel, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Think about um, the first martyr in Acts. It's a guy named Stephen. And when Stephen is being stoned, um, he says two things. Uh, Into your hands I commit my spirit. 
and forgive them for they know not what they do. And so sometimes we miss that because John is right there in the middle uh, with, his, with, with his little maverick self. Um, but Luke wants us to read these two together. Now, Luke is probably our most educated author in the New Testament. And what's interesting is that even though he's the most educated, he is writing to exalt um, the poor and the powerless and to give voice uh, to the voiceless. Um, and so even though Luke is uh, writing on behalf of the, the, the marginalized, uh, many of the educated elite in the Roman Empire would look at Luke's writing at, at very, as valid, as a great example of what we would call ancient historiography. <laughs> Big word. Okay, let's see. Let me me unpack that a bit. Ancient historiography. Let's imagine that they had bookstores in the first century. They didn't, but that'd be cool. Um, But and so let's we were walking. Let's walk into an ancient bookstore. We'll call it um, Scrolls a Million or Barnabas and Nobles. Um, And so we walk in and we see these placards of different types of genres, um, different types of sections of books. And we might see one that says histories. And we'd walk over there and we would see books like Josephus, um, uh, the history of the Jews. We might see Plutarch on his lives. Um, And there we would find the book of Acts. And Luke, being this educated person, is going to follow um, a a great example of what um, it looked like to do ancient history during that time. So for example, in all of these works, we would see like a prologue as who they were writing to. And so you notice in Luke's gospel in Acts, he begins by talking to this dude named Theophilus. They also will state their agenda and they give a summary of the past happenings that lead up as a drum roll to uh, what they want to talk about. And so Luke does this in both of his Gospels, um, where he's going to give a quick telescope of Jesus' story in Acts, and then he's going to talk about the ramifications. Now, with ancient history, it's going to be different from the way that we do history. If you were to go to DU, it's going to look a different um, than the history books that we have. Both of them, to be sure, want to focus on truth, um, to make sure that what they are saying is the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God. And so um, they're going to focus, that, that's going to be a point where they're the same. But one way that um, the ancient historiography is different than our modern history, whereas our modern history may be like, it's just the facts. Dragnet. Um, With the ancient history, they didn't want it just to give the old sterile facts, but instead they wanted it to be entertaining. As a Gen X, you know, it's a, here we are now, entertain us. And this is what the ancient authors wanted to do, is that they didn't want to just do history, but they wanted to entertain with history. And so they would do that in many different ways. Um, So, for example, it would include suspense. It would include surprise. It would include humor. It would include irony. Um, so think about uh, one of the great ironies of, in uh, the story is uh, Gamaliel, who is kind of like the master Yoda of the Jewish people during this time. Uh, he gets up and says, you know, we better be careful persecuting these, uh, cr- these uh, Jewish Christians because if they're from God, then nothing is going to stop them. And if we find ourselves fighting against them, we'll end up finding ourselves fighting against God. Well, Gamaliel, his number one Padawan, his number one student, was a dude named Saul. And Saul decides not to listen to his master and instead goes to persecute the Christians. And some of you probably know the rest of the story. Surprise, suspense. Uh, Saul um, meets Jesus on uh, the, the road to Damascus. God knocks him off his donkey. Um, and uh, he becomes the great missionary um, and ends up taking the gospel uh, to the Gentiles. And so we see the, the irony that, that happens inside of that. Um, often included in this humor, uh, sorry, in the entertainment factor is the gore. So Luke is going to be more gory. He's going to tell us what happens to um, 
Judas um, and the, the, the blood that spills and, and all of that. Herod, kind of think about that time. That there's humor that's involved. Remember when Peter gets released from prison and he goes to the house and Rhoda thinks that it's his ghost and slams the door on him? I know I'm giving some spoilers here, but these are things to look for, kind of the humor aspect. Now, two aspects of ancient historiography that were very entertaining. Uh, one is speeches. So what you'll see in Acts is that there are a lot of speeches. And for us, we may get kind of bored with speeches. We're going to like Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. But in the, the first century, they loved speeches. They loved great dialogue. And so whereas for many of us, we may want to skip over to the narrative, skip back over to the stories. For them, this is where the first audience would on the edge of their seat because they realized that the stories helped us, um, the, the speeches helped us interpret and understand the stories. And so it gets to the point where you don't know what, which one punctuates the other. Another example, whereas today we may really get into like zombie apocalypse um, dramas and genres. Um, in the first century, what we do with zombies, they did with uh, nautical tales. They loved shipwreck stories. And you'll see that Luke spends a, a long time talking about um, Paul's sheep, shipfaring uh, journeys. And so we, we see that it's humorous um, and uh, entertaining. But one of the main differences between ancient history and history today is that history then was meant, was written for an agenda. They had a purpose. They had a plan. And it wasn't hidden. They put it at the very beginning. And often the agendas of these ancient histories, like what we see in Acts, was to validate a people group, to say who a people group was and what they were doing here. And so when we talk about those questions, Acts is one of the best places to go because he spells it out who this new motley crew multicultural church is and what they're called to do. And they would validate, they would um, say that these people are too legit to quit. Hey, 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 by three ways, at least three ways. One is that they would appeal to tradition. They would come and say, yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. This group of people, they look new. But if you look underneath the, uh, underneath the cover, you'll see that they have long, old, ancient roots to a virtuous people, to a people who were divinely called. And this, this group of people, they are um, the fulfillment of that group. And so we see that uh, often the way that they would do this is they would point back to not just the, the, the peoples, but to their holy scriptures, I think I told you is this in a previous sermon, but it's worth repeating here. Um, when when Cece was younger, uh, I came home and Cece was watching the Bible Project, and I love the Bible Project. And I told Cece, "He's like, I love the Bible Project." And uh, Cece was watching Exodus, and I said, "Especially what the Bible Project does on the Old Testament." And Cece looked at me and said, "Old Testament? I think you mean Gold Testament, because there's treasure in there." Luke agrees with Cece. In order to validate this church of Jewish Gentile Christians that are coming together as this new group, as not like Judaism light or diet Judaism, but as the fulfillment, the bloom and the promise of what God said to Abraham, Luke is going to continue to reach in the speeches and the stories back to the Gold Testament. Even think about the very beginning. One of the, the stories, often with ancient historiographies, they'll take this one event um, that is a watershed that's transformative, that's epic. Um, and then it traces out the ripples effect of that until we have this group that, that is formed um, and the, uh, how this group begins to live their calling and their occupation, their vocation into the world. And for that event, for Luke, it is Pentecost. 
It's the church's birthday. They're going to party like it's their birthday. And so we see at Pentecost that God's power comes down and uh, everyone begins to speak in different languages. And uh, uh, there's a number of uh, people that are saved. Uh, One thing that Luke is doing here, if we look underneath the covers, is that he's appealing to tradition. For example, three ways that he does so is uh, when we think about people speaking in all different languages and no one understanding It takes us back to Genesis chapter 11, one of the first major falls of humanity. In Genesis 11, remember the people are wanting to build a tower that reaches all the way, 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 way up to God. Um, And so, and God looks down and says, you know what? If they all can understand one another, then whatever they intend to do, nothing will be impossible for them. And so God goes down and he confuses their languages and their blah, 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 and disperses them all throughout the world. When we get to uh, uh, Acts chapter 2, Luke wants us to understand this connection. And so the people are speaking in tongues like the Babylonians. But what has happened? Now, even though they're speaking in different languages, they all understand. And here we see that the birthday of the church is the reverse of the curse. And now nothing will be impossible for the, the, the united group of church who takes the kingdom of God into the world. It's not just there that we see the Gold Testament, uh, but we even see the Spirit of God coming down on the apostles and on the early church. This takes us back to what we see in Kings where uh, uh, Solomon uh, builds the temple and you remember the Shekinah glory that comes down. Uh, it reminds me of the smoke monster in Lost. But uh, anyway, the Shekinah glory of God comes down onto the temple to bless the temple. But as we continue to walk through the Hebrew Bible, we get to Ezekiel, and because the people had forgotten who they were and what they're doing here, all of a sudden the Spirit of God is just so grieved that he gets up off the temple, and he goes and hangs out on the Mount of Olives. It looks back at the temple and face palms, and it leaves, and it never comes back again. Even when they rebuild the temple, it's crickets, no spirit, until we get to Acts chapter 2, the birthday of Israel. All of a sudden, there ain't no potty like a Holy Ghost potty because the Holy Ghost potty don't stop. The Spirit of God comes down. But not on Herod's opulent, rich, oppressive temple. Now it comes down on these Jewish believers. They are the new temple of God. It validates them with tradition. But there's a third one there. Does anybody remember after Peter gets up and says, hey, 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 um, uh, some of you think we're drunk, but it's not, we're not drunk like you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning and we're not German uh, and we're Baptists. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but he gets up and says, this is to fulfill what Joel had said. And he quotes the prophet Joel. And then when they hear this, all of a sudden there's a number of people that are saved. Does anybody remember how many people are saved? Any, Hebrew, any uh, Old Testament scholar? I mean, any New Testament scholars here? 3,000. Fantastic. You got it. Mm, A right over there. Um, 3,000. And so for us, 3,000, it's a big number, but why why 3,000? Why does Luke include this number? Uh, One is part of ancient historiography. They love numbers. But we think of another time where there was 3,000. The number 3,000 was significant. It was someone else's birthday. It wasn't the first birthday of the church, but instead, it was the first birthday of Israel. We go back to Exodus 32, and on their very first birthday, rather than a cake, they decided to make a a cow, Um, and they decided to worship that cow. Um, The judgment of God comes upon them, and so they execute the men who had led out in that idolatry. Anybody want to guess what the number was? 3,000. And so see, whereas the birthday of Israel led to um, 3,000 Israelite men being uh, being executed, In Acts chapter 2, it's 3,000 Israelite men who have been saved because of the gospel. 
Luke is coming to say that not only is the new, uh, we as the people of God, um, not only are we the fulfillment of that, but we are the reverse of the curse. We walk in that blessing. For many of us today, we may look at our heritage, we may look at our lives and we're like, I'm, I'm, I'm worthless. I don't really know if I matter. But one thing we'd see when we look at Acts because of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that here's this reminder that we are legitimate people of God because we've been adopted into the story of God. That before the foundation of the world, God looked upon you and he wanted you to be a part of his chosen people. You are the fulfillment. You are the promise of that. And God has made you the apple of his eye. God has inscribed you on the palm of his hand because you are his people. One way is tradition. The second way is power. These ancient historiographers would show the power of God um, or the power that this group of people would have. And so if we did tradition from Fiddler on the Roof for the first one, I guess we would do, I've got the power uh, for this one. In this case, it was like, um, we got power. Yes, we do. We got power. How about you? Um, They would look to say that this group of people, they didn't just like accidentally form together and come together, but instead um, they were part of a divine design and blueprint. And the power of God, the power in their lives um, shows that the proof of the eating is in the pudding. And so we see this um, as we go through Acts as well, um, whether it's not just Pentecost, but again, Peter saying to the guy, get up off your feet and dance, you feel better at the very beginning of it. Or my favorite being the Paul guy that I am happens in Ephesus. Um, There's these uh, seven brothers that decide, I think it's probably a bachelor party. That's my best guess. My um, scholarly guess here is that they want to do something at my bachelor party. We went cow tipping, but in this group, they decided to go exercise a demon. And so they go find this dude that has this demon and uh, they say, (laughs) you you go first, you go. And there's one guy gets up and says, okay, um, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, demon come out. And the guy looks at him and says, well, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know, but who in the Hades are you? Um, And all of a sudden the demon gets really strong and beats up the seven brothers, strips them naked and sends them off uh, running um, like it was a bad frat party. But it shows that the power of the gospel is inside the church. It's in the name of Christ and in the, the, the gospel which Paul preaches, not outside of the world. And so we'll see as you go through Acts um, uh, and even the letters um, that, that promise, that call, that we have the power um, in a world that just seems so broken. And we just look at the pain and all the things that are happening. We get paralyzed. But what Acts is going to show us is that It's not about who we are. It's about who he is in us. It's not about our weakness, but it's about his strength coming on. And one thing that we're going to see in Acts, and Luke loves this uh, theme more than anyone else in in the New Testament, is that this power, it's initiated in prayer. When we work, we work. But when we pray, God works. And you'll see through Acts over and over again that the people are praying, the people are praying, the people are praying, the people are praying. And through that praying, all of a sudden, there's a whole lot of shaking going on and God begins to move in power through them. So as we look at our world today and we just want to just feel like we're so impotent, we're reminded that the same God who spoke creation into being, the same God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the same God who sent the spirit of God upon the church, that he is in us and he is working in us and it gives us that hope to keep on to know that our labor is not in vain. The final way that ancient historiographers would do is not just tradition. It wasn't just um, uh, I've got the power, but thirdly, it was connected to the pragmatics. 
um, that it actually was useful, that this group of people, that they were serving society. And so it's not just that they had great tradition roots. It's not just that they had the power of God, but they actually were making a difference in the world. In the Roman world, especially among the philosophers during this time, probably people that Luke had studied with, the great question that burned on their heart is, how do we get to the utopia? How do we get this civilization where everyone has unity? No matter what nation they're from, no matter what language they're from, no matter where they come from, how can we have this unity? Also with the philosophers, there's this concern. How can we take care of the poor and the powerless? And Rome didn't do a very good job of any of those, if you remember. They tried to bring everyone together under a sword rather than a cross. And uh, poverty continued just to uh, wreck um, the Roman world. But one thing that we'll see with Luke is he's going to come and say, hey, you know what? Um, Anything you can do, we can do better. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, we can't. We, We can do it better because of the power of God in our tradition. And so we'll see Luke over and over again showing how the church is doing what the Roman Empire and what the Greco-Roman philosophers could not do. They are coming together in one heart, in one soul, in unity. They are taking care of the poor so that there's no longer any poor in their congregation. They are taking the outcasts and the marginalized and bringing them into the kingdom of God. Luke does this to remind us that who we are and what we're doing here is not just we are God's forgiven people, not just that we're love God's loved people and that we Except we begin to follow Jesus and then we just wait until we die. But instead that we have a goal here. We have a vocation. And our vocation is to continue what we see Jesus says in Luke chapter um, 2 at the beginning of his ministry. Surely the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me and has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. To set the captives free. To take care of the prisoners. We are on call here as God's people to continue the ministry of Jesus. Today, who are you? What are you doing here? As we look at Acts, as we look at um, the fulfillment of the, of the Gospels, and we go on to the uh, Paul's letters, we're going to see this again and again, that we are God's multicultural people with virtuous roots. We are his holy temple filled with the power of his spirit, and we are a people on mission, united to bring forth justice into the world. Who are you? What are you doing here? Who are we as NDC? What are we doing here? One of my favorite shows growing up as a kid was Charlie Brown. Um, now I think it's just because he was, um, had a big head and was bald. But I always felt sorry for Charlie Brown because he just always seemed to fail again and again. You've seen it, right? He goes to kick the football and his friend picks up the football and he just falls on his face. Must be a Denver Bronco. Um, or he would go to the, the school and his teachers would speak a language that he didn't even know. Wah, 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 wah. It just seemed always to fail. I mean, the, 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 probably the best case of how big of a loser Charlie Brown was is that his dog was cooler than he was, right? But in this one episode that I saw, Charlie Brown was in a race um, and he wanted to win this race. He, he finally wanted to kind of get over being a loser. And so he trained really hard for the race. It was kind of like a Rocky Balboa motif. And the day came for the race and they said, get on your mark. And Charlie Brown got on his mark. They said, get set. He got set. The, the pistol went off and Charlie began to run as hard and as fast as he could. And all of a sudden, sudden, sudden something surprisingly happened. Charlie Brown began to pull out from all of the other runners. He began to not just pull out, but begin to go way ahead of them. They were eating his dust. Peppermint Patty was eating his dust. Snoopy was eating his dust. Pigpen was, well, eating his dust. 
Charlie Brown looks back and he realizes that he's going to win. For once in his life, he wasn't going to come in last. And he was so excited that he closed his eyes and he began to think about all the girls saying, Ooh, Charlie Brown, you're so cute. He began to think about his guys picking him up on his shoulder and saying, he's a jolly good fellow. He began to think about the great trophy that they gave him. And as Charlie Brown began to run, thinking about all these ideas with his eyes closed, because his eyes were closed, he couldn't see that the track curved up ahead. I saw what was coming. I don't have a degree in film, but I figured out what was happening. And so I began to cry to Charlie Brown, like, Charlie, open your eyes, open your eyes, the track's curving. But because he had his eyes closed, rather than taking the curve and running on to victory, Charlie Brown ran straight off the track, straight out of the stadium and down the road. And he lost. And I remember just the the impact, how poignant and how sad I was. But I feel like it's so easy for us today in the church to be like Charlie Brown, where we get our eyes off of the goal, Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, We put our eyes on things of the world rather than on Christ who's seated at the right hand of God. And we forget who we are. We forget what we're doing here. We are God's beloved people called out of darkness to proclaim his marvelous light, to be witnesses to Jerusalem and beyond, to the poor and the powerless, to the hurting. We are called to take care and to when people see our good deeds, that they glorify our Father in heaven. We are called to be unified in faith and love. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes as the worship band comes. I just want you to ask real quickly, what in this message does the Lord have for you? What is it that has your name on it? Perhaps like Charlie Brown, you've gotten distracted by things of the world, the trophies, the applause of men, just your own agenda, and you've gotten off track and God's calling you back. For some of you, maybe you're kind of in that stage of just trying to figure out who you are trying to figure out why you're here. And God wants you to know that it's immeasurably more than you can ask for or imagine the journey that he has for you. For some, it's just that reminder that you may think that you're a nobody, you may think that you're insignificant, but you've been adopted into a family of God. You are sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. For some, and this is where I am today, but I'm gonna be honest with you, you just feel powerless as you look and read the news. We just need that hope that we don't do this on our own, but we have the power of God that's working in us, that wants to use us to redeem the world and bring peace, that we're part of that divine plan. For some, maybe you've just forgotten that it's not just about forgiveness, but God wants you to take care of the poor. God wants you to walk in unity. God has a plan for you as his people. Lord, add to your words. Let it come with power, conviction, and the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name. Amen.